0: The edition is sponsored by Charles Stanley, one of the UK's leading wealth managers, providing bespoke investment management and financial advice. Find out more at charles-stanley.co.uk
1: Hello and welcome to The Edition podcast from The Spectator. I'm Cindy Yu. This week, we'll take a look at Boris Johnson's Mission Impossible. The Prime Minister is trying to rewire the British state. Will he succeed? His political opponent these days is no longer Jeremy Corbyn, but Keir Starmer, who marks his first 100 days as Labour leader this month. I find out why some in the Labour Party are sounding a note of optimism. And finally, how loneliness can affect more people than you think, and they're not necessarily who you think either. First up, James Forsyth writes in this week's cover article that Boris Johnson is trying to rewire the British state, but it's not the first time a Prime Minister has tried to reform the civil service, so can he succeed? James joins me now, together with Jill Rutter from the UK in a changing Europe, who is also a former civil servant with experience in the Treasury, Number 10 and DEFRA. So James, let's start with you. Can you tell us about Boris Johnson's impossible project?
2: The paradox at the heart of Boris Johnson's political project is that he is very clear-eyed, brutal even, about the failings of the British administrative state. Yet he is reliant on government to deliver the changes that he needs for the economy. Now, this makes this political project very unusual because normally in British politics people's view on the efficacy of government, informs their view of a state. So uh, the post-war Labour government thought that the man in Whitehall knew best and set about nationalising industries, bringing government far more into people's lives. Margaret Thatcher thought that individuals knew better than government and set about rolling back the frontiers of a state. What is unusual about this government is that it thinks that there are lots of things wrong with the British administrative state, yet it wants to rely on government to deliver the changes that it thinks are gonna secure future prosperity.
1: So what exactly does it want Whitehall to look like?
2: So it wants to reform Whitehall. Now, we've heard that from, you know, I think I think it's for about 40 years we've heard from British politicians, a desire to reform Whitehall. But I think it, it is about trying to make government more effective. And I think, you know, the, the question is always, so why is this going to be any different from any of the previous attempts? And I think that the, the reason it might be is that COVID has essentially acted as a kind of stress test for systems of government around the world. And it is hard to look at what has happened in the UK and say that the UK is a particular particularly well-governed country um, and I think the other interesting thing is that you know you, you I, I think this is perhaps what went wrong with the Francis Mordor attempt. you can't impose reform on the civil service by kind of ministerial diktat I think mean, there is an interesting sense that you are beginning to get a cadre of kind of young Turks in the civil service who, who are who begin to think that things need to change and it's whether that can all come together to actually produce some you know proper reform.
1: Joe, I think people who haven't worked in the civil service or don't know much about the civil service probably get most of their opinion of the civil service from Yes Minister, this idea of the Sir Humphreys, you know, uh, this inertia within the institution to change. Do you think that's fair? And is,
3: is the civil service resisting change for the better? I think Yes Minister has quite a lot to answer for in terms <laughs> of a slightly tired stereotype, truer then than it is now. I think James is right. What was interesting, I think, about the big speech that Michael Gove gave at the weekend... Was an awful lot of civil servants would have looked at his criticism and said, "Yeah, I actually I agree with that." And as James was saying, that sort of critique of the civil service too, London-based, not sort of you know data literate enough, uh, you know, too full of arts and humanities graduates. You could look at ministers too and say that's possibly quite a fair critique of them. But uh, I think those have all been well recognised for really some time. The interesting thing I thought was missing from Michael Gove's speech was what to do about it. You slightly hoped that he might back up that critique with the sort of start of a plan. It's quite interesting, James mentioning Margaret Thatcher in his article, he mentioned, you know, Thatcher-Reagan reforms. What was really interesting about Mrs Thatcher was she depended on the state to roll back the frontiers of the state. So one of the very big projects under Thatcher was privatisation, taking out all that, you know, welter of nationalised industries. But those were done by civil servants working with banks and stuff like that. Uh, Some of the ways in which they set about managing public services differently. There's a rise of new public management, as it was then called, executive agencies focused more on delivery. That all had to be done by the civil service. That was a sort of thing. So I think you know ministers basically can't run the state on their own. And unfortunately for them, the people they have to rely on to run the state are the existing cadre of civil servants. And if they're going to change that completely in the time available, then they're going to run out of time and be out of office before they've made any changes. So as James said, they need to really work with people and find people who do want to run with their project. And I think there are people. I think there are people who recognise the need for reform. I think, I think people underestimate the shock the civil service got, not by the sort of Brexit vote per se, but by the fact they didn't see it coming. And I think there's been a lot of thought about why actually did we not spot that? Some, I think, can actually be attributed to David Cameron. And some of the Cameron reforms. One of the early things he did was get rid of a thing called the government office network in the regions. Uh, interesting, Michael Gove talking about dispersion, sending people out to the regions to make policy decisions. That was actually the sort of source of regional intelligence. Yeah, you know, it was a government office with cross-departmental representation every region of England. But David Cameron dispensed with that in one of his very early acts. I think that was a big mistake and actually Whitehall would have had a better clue of what was going on on the ground if he hadn't got rid of that.
1: James, just picking up on what Jill just said there about some politicians also fulfilling that arts graduate stereotype, You mentioned that COVID has changed the calculation in that it's shown that the British state doesn't quite work. Some critics of the government might say that that's a political flaw rather than like a bureaucratic problem.
2: Well, I think this is one of the reasons why it's so imperative that there is a proper public inquiry. And a public inquiry that it's concluded relatively rapidly, because I I think one of the, one of the things that, that there is going to be a plenty of blame to go around in this public inquiry, and I think anyone who thinks that politicians from the prime minister down are not going to get criticised by this public inquiry that that is for the birds. They they obviously are. I think the worrying thing is. It's not like there were parts of the administrative state saying, do this differently, Prime Minister, please do this now, please do that differently. And I think that is the concern. I mean, the other concern is the number of things that the government have tried. Now, there have been some exceptions to this, you know, for example, the furlough scheme has clearly, you know, HMRC clearly delivered on that in a way in which very few people, when it was announced, would have thought was possible. But there are other aspects of things, you know, like, Like the, um, I would say, testing, I'd say the failure to scale that up earlier, the fact that the app doesn't work. There are clearly bits of the state that, when they have tried to do things, they have not functioned as effectively as they should have done.
1: So Joe, we've diagnosed a problem, which is that, for example, in the Covid crisis, uh, the state didn't react fast enough or effective enough. Do you think that what the number 10 is proposing in terms of the cure, this sort of whitehall reform, is the right way to go about preventing something like this from happening again in the future?
3: Well, we've only seen sort of little bits, uh, snippets of what actually the change looks like. We're, we're better versed in the critique, I think, than actually what the change starts to look like. What was quite interesting, I think, about some of the things James was talking about, you know, Uh, bringing in a permanent section number 10 to get a bit of a grip on the machine for the Prime Minister, reinstating a delivery unit, that was a sort of Tony Blair innovation, morphed into something else under Gordon Brown, discarded by David Cameron, then came back a bit as an implementation unit. I think those are useful bits of machinery. Possibly different role for the Cabinet Secretary, focusing more on the sort of civil service leadership role than on the principal policy advisor. That's very, very, James might not like me saying this, uh, very, very new Labour. Uh, what was really interesting about New Labour was actually they sort of diminished the policy making role of the civil service to quite a large extent, preferring to rely on their own political advisers. And certainly uh, the way in which successive cabinet secretaries did that job was more focusing on the head of the civil service role in some ways than being the prime minister's principal policy advisor. So I think it's really interesting. One of the questions is who do they put in and are they people who are able to build that critical relationship with both the prime minister and his his key ministers. I think down the line, it's going to be very interesting when we get James mentioning the inevitable public inquiry, as it's now known. I think it's going to be very interesting on things, for example, on ramping up testing. Was that where there were very clear directions from ministers very early on, we need to do that, and something went wrong in that sort of big delivery chain, as we might have called it, that that message didn't get passed on, or there was institutional resistance because the agency responsible just didn't want to let go. I think that's going to be very interesting. On the NHS Test and Trace app, quite a lot of people saying that ministers were warned early that what they wanted to do, you know, a british own app, uh, world-beating, etc., was not the right way to go were those warnings heeded. So I think it's only when we unpick that sort of who said what to whom when that we'll know. But I think the important thing is actually that the whole lot are committed. I think there's one thing that really is important, though, that I think everybody agreed would have improved the early stage of response, and the government was very, very slow on, and notably didn't feature in James and didn't really feature in Michael Gove's speech that much, was much more transparency. A lot of people say, actually, if they'd exposed the early deliberations of SAGE, people outside might have said... You know, Jeremy Hunter, I think he believes in saying that. What? You're only looking at two options. Uh, isn't there a third way? We're talking New Labour, so maybe we should mention that. Isn't there something different you might do? That people could have criticised that. And I think one of the things that would be really good, particularly with emphasis on data, etc., is much more transparency. And that actually is a sort of like living peer review of government. You know, you can see what government's doing and say, actually, that's not right. And I think that improves the environment for advice, And actually, for ministerial decision making, ministers may not like it, but it's a much better way of doing government, potentially.
1: And, James, just finally, some of the critics of the government have been saying in the days since Mark Sedwell announced he was departing from Number 10 that this is a political project. That, you know, they look at David Frost's appointment, they say he's a political appointee rather than anyone with background in national security. And this is seen by some as a way for the government to fill, to stack the civil service with supporters. Do you think that's fair?
2: I think there are two distinct things going on here. I, I think the David Frost appointment it is clearly an unusual move away. And it is a conscious choice for the prime minister's kind of key foreign policy national security adviser to be to be someone who is politically aligned with him now I think it's worth remembering that David Frost is an unusual being in that he is a former ambassador who became a special advisor so he's always had a kind of a slightly kind of hybrid identity but so but, but i think that i, mean, I think there is a, there is an interesting debate there about whether having a more political person in that role is the right choice or not I, I think there is a case for for it in that lots of their counterparts around the world from our key allies who they will be most closely dealing with are political figures but obviously if that results in a situation where you get the politicization of security advice that would obviously be wrong i think that on the domestic policy side i think it is essentially trying to make up for the kind of jeremy hayward shaped gap in British public life there is a it is a weird thing the civil service is such a large organisation you wouldn't believe this is true but I think from Jeremy Hayward's return to Whitehall in 2008 the the, the whole system almost became built around this man and his exceptional talents and I think if you look at what they are trying to do it is trying to get back to that someone in number 10 once said to me but um, uh, it's, like, it's like kind of Batman the, the, you know, you the, the butler comes and says Mr Wayne this is the car and you do this and you do that and all of these things happen and the car which doesn't look Looks like a normal sports car turns into this amazing machine. And that Jeremy Hayward was that butler who was capable of saying to the Prime Minister, Well, if you pull that button and this button, this is what will happen. And when Jeremy Hayward so, so tragically left the scene, that that knowledge was lost. And so the car has been driving around and no one's known what kind of buttons to pull or press to, to get things to happen. And I think if you look at a lot of these reforms and Simon Case coming back from the palace, the situation where the domestic policy secretariat is going to report into him, I think a lot of it is about trying to recreate. Create that grip that Jeremy Hayward gave prime ministers, and I, I, I think this idea that they're desperate to have a Brexiteer cabinet secretary, I think, mean, I mean that is that, that is a mistaken assumption. I think it is much more about trying to get someone who can deliver for the prime minister, and particularly a prime minister who is a, I think it would be fair, I think even his admirers will admit, is a kind of broad brush politician.
3: As just going to say, I think one of the most unfair criticisms of Mark Sedwill is that he isn't Jeremy Hayward, because actually nobody would have been Jeremy Hayward. Jeremy had been at the centre of government for so long that he really just knew how to make it work in a way that nobody else did. I think it was interesting about Theresa May's critique of David Frost, you know, I mean, obviously it's a political appointment. I think the government could have been less provocative... Uh, he's clearly not going to do the NSA job in the same way as Mark said, well, and they've actually made arrangements for different reporting lines for the intelligence agencies, not going to be the accounting officer, the intelligence votes. So they could have easily said the prime minister's appointing his new global affairs envoy in number 10. That's going to be David Frost. He's going to have a role on political advice on national security. He's going to champion global Britain and he'll be the prime minister's G7 Sherpa, etc. because we want a more political role reasons James set out so I think you could have done that and made it much clearer then you wouldn't have had all of that the interesting thing I thought about Theresa May's intervention this is a bit unfair but actually if you looked at Mark Sedwell who got the cabinet office job in slightly weird circumstances you said he was very well qualified to be national security advisor actually he wasn't desperately well qualified to be cabinet secretary and his main qualification for cabinet secretary was what Theresa May trusted him and she finds it very difficult to build relationships and that basically excluded all potential other competitors who might actually have had a pedigree that would have made it easier for them to at least fill some of that Haywoodian gap. James and Joe, thanks very much.
2: Get 12 weeks of The Spectator in print and online for just £12 and we'll give you a £20 Amazon gift voucher, absolutely free. Go to spectator.co.uk forward slash voucher.
1: The success of Number 10's projects matter even more now that they're facing up towards a more formidable political opponent in Keir Starmer. Katie Bors writes in this week's political column about Keir Starmer's almost first 100 days. She joins me now together with Paul Mason, former economics editor of Channel 4, who worked on Keir Starmer's campaign and writes the diary for The Spectator this week. So, Katie, you write this week that the Labour Party just might be back in business. How so?
0: Later this month, you know, just over a week's time, Keir Starmer will mark his first 100 days, and I think that if you think back to when Ian Duncan Smith was Tory leader, he suggested he should be judged on this. At this point, uh, the public should have got a sense of what you are about as a leader of a party, even if you know you still have a a long way to go before any election. And the sense I get, speaking to Labour MPs but also just those generally across the party is they are feeling it is going pretty well and some are actually even people who backed Keir Starmer are pleasantly surprised at what's happened. Meanwhile on the Tory side although I think there are definitely some in number 10 who do not think Keir Starmer is a problem still I do sense increasing uh, you know concern over Keir Starmer in the sense that people feel they are now dealing with quite a difficult opposition and I think when you look at what Keir Starmer has achieved I think one thing that did sum it up was the fact that he has led on on the poll on the question uh, in one poll of who would make the best prime minister, mm. Keir Starmer and Boris Johnson. Now that's something that has eluded previous Labour leaders, um, and it's seen as quite critical, if uh, you speak to pollsters they think this is a really important metric for working out whether a party leader stands a good chance of winning an election now there's plenty of time for that to go so we don't want really to get ahead of ourselves but I just think that if you think about where things started it's definitely the case that Keir Starmer has made a decent impression on the public and he has been helped of course by certain things such as the fact the Tories haven't done wonders for their reputation as you know the party of competence in recent weeks months. The Tories have also been dealt a very difficult hand in a, in a global pandemic this early on. But all that has come together, and I think Keir Starmer has succeeded in emerging as a sensible opposition leader, which some of you doubt uh, Labour would be able to do after the election.
1: Now, Paul, you worked on Keir Starmer's leadership campaign, well, only a couple of months ago, but it seems like a lifetime ago. And you sound a note of optimism in your diary for The Spectator this week as well. But you also say that not everyone in the party is happy.
4: Well, they're most obviously not. And uh, I can tell you from my own Twitter feed that uh, the, the reactions of, of parts of the left to Starmer and to people like me who've supported him is really quite hostile. But look, what distinguishes Keir Starmer? I think before we talk about the politics, it's the professionalism. And I don't just mean that he's done a senior professional job. What was missing you know, say the back nine months of Corbynism was an idea of a leadership that that knows it doesn't know stuff. So I think when the accounts come out, and there are there are numerous accounts going to come out this year about what went wrong with Corbynism, that the problem is that they were being told things that they weren't listening. Now I think that Starmer has quickly established an operation inside Norman Shore South building when they were allowed to move back into it that listens to people. And one of the things it listened to was Northern MPs and ex MPs saying two things. The the public like the lockdown in, play, in the so called Red Wall. And the other thing is they don't want this to be politicised. Now, there were a lot of people who wanted Starmer to prove his left wing mettle by trying to take Johnson down with the sliding tackle at every point. Starmer's instinct was that Johnson would take himself down with the sliding tackle. Uh, rather in the manner of his famous rugby exploit. And I think that's what's happened. But we've got lots and lots... I mean, uh, the report came out, didn't it, that if Labour can't really win big time in Scotland, and then at the next election to form a majority of one, it has to take Jacob Rees-Mogg's seat, the Red Fen. So that's the size of the hill Starm has to climb, and he's just at base one right now
1: and Katie one of the turning points or at least one of the signifiers of, of Starmer's difference to Corbyn is the sacking of Rebecca Long-Bailey when she refused his instruction to take down this tweet was it a gamble on Starmer's part to do that
0: look I think anything which is going to isolate or potentially you know trigger one portion of the party is a gamble but a calculation was made and you know there's lots of theories doing the rounds but ultimately I think it's safe to say this wasn't planned in the sense that this came about because Rebecca Long Bailey shared an article in which there was an anti-Semitic conspiracy theory and the Starmer side say that they asked her to delete it and apologize and she refused to delete it so I think it comes down to two things first off they wanted to show that Keir Starmer means it when he says he takes anti-Semitism really seriously so we heard a lot in his leadership campaign but I do think After the past few years, you tend to take a pinch of salt when certain politicians say that. It's not always quick in terms of their actions after something. With Jeremy Corbyn, you'd often have a row about something which was allegedly anti-Semitic. No apology. Then if it got really bad after a week, a Guardian opinion piece would appear where he would acknowledge his party had to do more. So I think by moving so quickly to SACA, we got a sense that Kistama, is taking a very different approach to this but secondly I think it comes down to party discipline which is ultimately there is a sense that they could not run an operation where you ask one of your shadow cabinet members to do something and they just refuse and I think that you've seen that in a few other things but I think it shows you just in terms of leading the party going forwards anti-Semitism, sending that message, but also having a well-disciplined party is seen as absolutely essential. And I think it comes back to what is so different about Keir Starmer and Jeremy Corbyn. On policy, to be honest, on domestic policy, I don't think we have... The full sense of all that clear blue water yet, there are still lots of things that are going to stay there. That could be a harder sell with the membership. Where he's trying try and change tack? But it's not clear he wants to change tack on all that stuff. But I think one of the differences is this idea of competence and being sensible. And I think that there is a sense amongst some senior Starmer allies that what they've lost in the past couple of years was a bit of a sense of decency around the Labour brand, and anti-Semitism in one way it manifests itself but also I think they don't want to get drawn into all these factional battles where you would have you know Corbyn outriders going out defending one things and I think this is part of that effort.
1: Paul in your diary you say that the sacking of Rebecca Long Bailey was disastrous for your wing of the party but do you think ultimately it was the right choice to make?
4: Well he had to do it because as I understand it They were up against a deadline with the Board of Deputies quite rightly saying, what are you going to do about this? And the communications broke down. And when they were re-established, Rebecca refused to take down her tweet. So as, as you say, Katie, again, I think that's the legacy of, of the late stage Corbynism when you know, people used to be hiding from each other in corners to avoid taking decisions. And I think that, so, so the mismatch of perception over what was right and wrong, and then the mismatch of perception about what you're allowed to do as a shadow cabinet minister led to that. Um, And I think technically he was right to sack her. The problem is for those like me who are spending like sort of almost like every waking hour trying to keep... Now, when I say the left, you have to remember that we're not talking about a bunch of crazed small groups. We're talking about 25 to 30 percent of the Labour membership are pretty disenchanted with what's happened. And I want them and us to engage with Starmer critically if necessary, but to do what he's trying to do, which is to unite the party... And revive its fortunes in the north of England. So, the problem is now. I, you know, I, what I said in the column is that you know it it's, it it does look like bad party management because, you know, where was he? Was in Sunderland trying to win win over the Red Wall, where there was clearly a thing going on. And now we're going to have to pick up the pieces. I think with regard to Rebecca, although I didn't vote for her, I think she's an excellent politician, and I think the kind of manner of the climb down. So, so Maxine. Peak has climbed down, Rebecca has basically said to her supporters, don't fight for me, don't die on this hill. I think that, that opens a route back. But, like I say, I think that the, the politics of it are I mean, are all overshadowed uh, by the coming EHRC report. I mean, that's in a so-called maximalisation process at the moment. Those named in it know what it says about them. And I think that must have concentrated uh, Starmer's mind on this and as you see, there hasn't been a huge left revolt. Loads of front frontbenchers. I mean, there were people on Twitter saying all the left front frontbenchers from the socialist campaign group should resign immediately. None of them did. So I think he's got over the bump. Uh, but as I say, it's a bump. The hill is the 2024 general election.
1: Now, Katie, Paul mentioned earlier in the podcast about um, the Starmer approach to coronavirus, which is just not to be too critical. And it's a hard balance to strike. Is the Starmer team going to go on a different approach now that the pandemic seems to be over the worst?
0: Well, I think they're changing tack slightly. So I think what's interesting about Keir Starmer is what we've seen repeatedly. And Paul touched on it when he was talking about there was pressure when Keir Starmer first came on to go all out. And there are people on the left and actually some people in the Tory party saying, why isn't he being more critical? I think there was a point when it felt Jeremy Hunt was being more critical of the government than um, Keir Starmer. But I think going forward, the where they think that they can combine all those things, so calling for things which the government might have to change tack on, generally is on jobs. So we are through the first, and hopefully the last, but you know the first public health crisis on this, in the sense the peak of it. We clearly still have coronavirus in the country. We're having one local lockdown, more to come um, over you know the coming months. But the Economic crisis is really going to start kicking off this summer because all the packages are slowly being wound back, and I think where Keir Starmer wants to place himself is going on jobs. I think there are a few reasons for that. I think firstly the Conservative Party is relatively high spend for a Tory party. The economy remains a weakness for Labour in terms of uh, you know some of those target voters. So actually saying Boris Johnson isn't spending enough, even if you say oh that five billion wasn't close to the New Deal they claimed it was. That is slightly tricky for Labour, actually, to a degree. But going on jobs, when we know we're going to head to high unemployment, I mean, if the government handles this, you can't avoid unemployment, but there is a chance, are we going to go above 10% in unemployment? You know, things like that. I think that is where Labour want to position themselves, and you're beginning to hear it.
1: Paul, do you agree? And also, just looking at the coming few months, what are the pitfalls for Keir Starmer?
4: Well, the the strategic problem is the same one that Labour had when it was in power in 1929-31, that we're in a crisis, the crisis needs a a whole new setup. It needs a solution, whether it's a conservative-designed one or a Labour one, there needs to be a new model that copes with uh, a kind of perennial returning uh, virus, which is flattening, flatlining demand. But while you're designing it, you also have to do the anti-crisis measures. Now, I think for Johnson for the government, there is a pitfall around the furlough, withdrawing the furlough scheme. If they were sensible, expensive though it is, I think they would just keep it going. But ultimately, there's got to be something better. Uh, and I think that's where the debate will go from Labour's point of view towards a, a, a job creation, a, a skills reallocation strategy for the sectors that might never come back. We see the Royal Exchange Theatre sacking a th- two-thirds of its workers. So that's the short term. The politics, however, of this new deal of Johnson's are interesting because I think Labour strategists already understand that just calling for for Rishi Sunak to add a naught to everything doesn't really make much sense. What makes sense is to ask the question, who is this for? And I think if you remember the Robert Jenrick Richard Desmond episode because we're going to be building a lot of things and a lot of the Conservatives' friends in the construction and civil engineering industry are going to get those contracts, I think that's where the, the, the scrutiny will be. If the beneficiaries of the New Deal are um, several big-name construction companies but not their workers and not care homes and not laid-off transport workers, that's where the New Deal thing... I mean, it does sound... I mean, £5 billion or no... I mean, FDR, and Gove says it in this speech. Gove's speech is erudite, interesting. I read it with great interest, critically, obviously. They understand that that FDR did a whole lot more than £5 FDR legalised trade unions and attacked the investment banks. I mean, when we see the Conservative government do that, they might be able to use the New Deal brand label a little bit more honestly.
1: Katie and Paul, thanks very much.
4: Get
2: 12 weeks of The Spectator in print and online for just £12. And we'll give you a £20 Amazon gift voucher, absolutely free. Go to spectator.co.uk forward slash voucher.
1: And finally, Mary Rakefields writes in her column this week about her lonely 86-year-old neighbour. So just how widespread is the problem of loneliness? I'm joined now by Andy Naser, who is the campaign manager for England for the Campaign to End Loneliness, as well as Leif Arbuthnot, whose recent book, Looking for Eliza, is all about loneliness and intergenerational friendship. So Andy, can you start by telling us how widespread a problem loneliness is?
5: Well, the thing about loneliness is that it's personal for everybody, so it's hard to say how big it's been. But certainly we started, if we talk about older people, we started with round about half a million older people going five or six days a week without speaking to anyone. And that probably hasn't changed during the pandemic. But as far as numbers are concerned, the only people that have done any kind of reliable research uh, was the Office of National Statistics. And they came with a figure that said one in seven of us have experienced lockdown loneliness.
1: And I suppose one of the particular problems for the elderly is the lack of technological know-how. So, you know, we always hear about Zooming grandmas and whatever, but lots of people won't be able to get that sort of tech working.
5: No, unfortunately, so many aren't able to connect via technology. Uh, We are going through a bit of a bubble that will one day we will come out of that bubble. There's a lot of bubbles involved with this, by the way, uh, the lockdown. Uh, but that is one of them, the, te- the, the technological bubble. Um, but we will come through that. But right for the moment, yes, around about 2.5 million over 75s uh, have never been online.
1: And Leif, Mary makes the suggestion in her column about how if the elderly are going to give up their pensions so that our economy can survive after the pandemic, that the kids around town should also be pairing up with the elderly um, to, to do their shopping or just to talk to them. And your book, of course, is all about friendship between a 20-year-old and how old is Ada?
6: She's in her 70s, yeah. My story, Looking for Eliza, is about how different generations, um, particularly of women, experience loneliness. Um, I think we do associate loneliness with the very old and the very cut off, and of course we should be helping those people, but I also think it's a big issue among people in their 20s who, on the surface of things, look like they've got it all. Um, I'm 27, and um, especially my single friends have had a really quite a difficult period. It feels like everyone is um, who's in couples are kind of you know living a, a quite sort of snug existence you know in a sort of nest but for people who are alone even if they're living in, the, in back in their family homes I think it's been really difficult and I think there's an enormous advantage as well to those friendships that kind of span the generations a lot of my um, my kind of cohort have been doing the shopping for people. I've been doing shopping for people in my community in Berkshire and it's just so rewarding. Um, I think, you know, that we, we ignore those those connections at our peril, really.
1: Andy, does your campaign look at loneliness in younger people?
5: Uh, well, we have a particular focus on later life, but I, I don't think we can ignore the fact that we know that loneliness affects people right throughout their life course, right from uh, school age through to older age, everyone is affected. The issue is with loneliness, it doesn't discriminate. It can reach into anybody's lives. Most of us will touch loneliness at one point or another in our lives, but for where it becomes really harmful uh, and chronic loneliness is where it just becomes all-consuming and you can't get out of it.
6: I'm quite surprised that it's as few as one in seven uh, have experienced loneliness. I would say it's at least half of people, but maybe I've just got a very mopey group of friends.
5: (laughs) I think the, the actual statistic is one in seven are concerned about their mental well-being as a result of loneliness. But yeah, how could we not have gone through all those weeks without connecting in one way or another with periods of loneliness? I mean,
1: Is there a definition of loneliness beyond people just feeling, I mean, how, how, do, how do we define loneliness from maybe less chronic unhappiness, just, you know, you just had a bad day and you have no one to talk to you about it?
5: Well, there it's personal it really is it depends on the individual but what we what we talk about at the campaign is a sense of lacking because you can be lonely in a crowd you're not disconnected you you're not isolated but you can feel lonely i think what we've just experienced is a lot of isolation uh, and it's enforced isolation which We've never really i mean some people have faced that where they've they've developed illness or perhaps they've become immobile for a while, but we've never we've never ever experienced anything on this kind of scale, and I think that word enforced is quite important. there was no option we couldn't go out
6: one of the other issues i think is that people haven't had the professional networks um in place as as much as usual I think a lot of especially younger people they get a lot of their you know self they sort of self-identify through what they do and without being able to go into a physical office you sort of slightly lose a sense of who you are and i think that affects people right you know right across the generations but it's been particularly you know sharp during the pandemic i think
1: that's really interesting leaf mary also makes an interesting comparison between the younger and the older demographics she says that 65 uh, percent of 16 to 19 year olds say that their well-being has been negatively affected compared to just 34 percent of over 70 so it seems like teenagers are twice as likely to say that their well-being has been affected is that just because the generation of snowflakes in quotation marks or is it something else going on do you think
6: no, I think it 's totally not because they're a generation of snowflakes. I think when you 're a teenager and when you 're in your twenties, you basically live through your interactions with your friends, obviously your family's important, but um you become your you, you know your your best self as the, as the terrible expression goes through hanging out with your with your pals and and the fact is that you know the the teenagers and twenty year olds who are giving up their so- social lives have very little to fear from this virus, so there is a degree of a feeling of pointlessness to having to stay in anyway—that um, that I think is coming up. I mean, of course, I think it's fair to say that the generation, you know, seventy-year-olds, eighty-year-olds, ninety-year-olds, a lot of those people have been through some quite tough times, and and maybe they are a bit more stoic than than lucky, you know, millennials and Gen Zers who who've been able to text to their heart's content forever. But I really, I really resist this this idea that it 's not a serious thing for people in their teens and twenties. Um, I think it's been really tough. I also think it's been really rubbish for people with kids you know who especially kids who need looking after the whole time because suddenly your life has been reduced presumably if you're if you're a single parent say to kind of just attending to the whims of your child and and their education and balancing that with your with your working life if you 've got one so it 's been crap all around it's been crap all around, and I don 't like the idea of putting um you know sort of uh, setting one generation in competition with the next
1: <laughs> and andy your, your organization is hosted by independent age which, which is a charity that helps older people become independent and you know they don't necessarily have to live with their family but do you think the pandemic has made older people reconsider how they want to go about doing that are they going to be less likely to be independent given what's happened
5: well, I sincerely hope not. I think, if anything, it's helped a lot of people reconnect with the inner resilience that we all have, and we all build up over the years. I don't think there's going to be a mad rush to go and live with family. It's it's just not it's just not there. But I think the the important thing to to connect with here is that actually we've all experienced lockdown. The vast majority of us are leaving, but so many people are remaining. And they will still be there when we're back at work and we're living our quote-unquote new normal lives. So let's not forget, there's still people out there.
1: Andy and Leif, thanks very much. And that's it for this week. Pick up this week's issue to read all the pieces discussed in the episode, as well as more from Conrad Black, Alan Johnson reviews Andrew Donis' new book, and Leifa Bothnot, who you heard on the podcast, writes the arts lead on the growing cultural rebellion of underground theatre and raves. Thanks for listening, and join us again next week.
2: Get 12 weeks of The Spectator in print and online for just £12. And we'll give you a £20 Amazon gift Voucher, absolutely free. Go to spectator.co.uk forward slash voucher.